Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so today's episode is brought to you by Zencaster. And I remember back in the day where I was looking at putting together Zencaster, I was looking for a solution that would really help me in putting things together. And essentially, this is what allowed me to bring deal makers to life. I mean, basically, Zencaster, what it is, is an all-in-one solution where you just send the link to the person that you're looking to interview. Essentially, they would plug in their computer with their video, with the audio, and then basically you are good to go. You would just piece everything together, give it to your audio engineer, or even edit it yourself, and you are off to the races. Now, if you're looking at getting into podcasting, you should definitely check Zencaster out. And you could also get a 30% discount. And this is a discount code that you will be able to redeem by going into Zen, and that is csnzebraen.ai forward slash dealmakers and then number zero. And lastly, you know, I was very much blown away when I found out that investing in wine has been one of the best kept secrets amongst the ultra wealthy. And this is now not the case anymore. You know, I came across this solution, which is called VinoVest, and they are a great, great solution that allows you to diversify investing by implementing or including wines into your portfolio. I mean, take a look at this. Wine has one third of the volatility of the stock market, and yet it has outperformed the global equities market over the past 30 years with 10.6% annualized revenues. So it's a really good way to diversify your portfolio. And you could also get two months of free investing by just going into the Send and that is csnzebraen.ai forward slash dealmakers. And by just going there, you will be able to redeem your discount. Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting entrepreneur. I mean, the entrepreneurial journey is unbelievable. He's done it multiple times. Uh, build, scale, finance, exited. I think that we're going to really have a lot of fun today going into the insights, into what it takes from bringing an idea all the way to life and then also to a really interesting exit. Uh, but I think that without further ado, I don't want to make anyone wait any longer. So let's welcome our guest today, Sunil Paul. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much. I am very excited to be here. So originally from India, from Punjab. Yeah. So uh, tell us about, yeah, life growing up. Life growing up. Well, I was only four years old when I came to the U.S. I, I think the uh, one of the most memorable experiences arriving in the United States was there are two things that made a huge difference and made, made a big impression on me. Even I still remember one was just the number of cars running around. I mean, I was from a town, uh, a farm town uh, in Punjab, uh, a town called Ferozpur. There were not a lot of cars in 1960, whatever year that was. Here, arriving in the United States, there's just cars everywhere. And I think that's actually influenced my uh, focus on mobility uh, for so long. The other was snow. Like, I had never seen snow before. And even though I was very excited to see my father, I, uh, I remember distinctly reaching down, feeling snow before 
you know, then running to the door to go see my father. Those were those are the, the formative experiences that I remember from from the arrival in the United States. And I'm sure there are another formative that was very influential into perhaps your entrepreneurial uh, desire or, or 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 journey that you took on was your own parents, you know, running their yeah. own their own thing, their own farm. So so what did you learn out of uh, out of really experiencing them, you know, leading their own thing and 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 perhaps going through the ups and downs of of running your own uh, business so how was that for you my family has a lot of entrepreneurs in it my my parents were entrepreneurs for almost 30 years uh, running a hydroponic greenhouse farm in tennessee back in the 80s and 90s and in the early 2000s and very unusual for its time and uh, i guess even unusual today uh, my my grandfather was uh, on my mother's side was an entrepreneur, actually on my father's side as well, and my uncle uh, was an entrepreneur, and and so it's part of the family culture. This idea that you know the part of the way you make your way in life is to figure out ways that you can make something for others and and sell it. So I think probably the, one of the biggest things I learned from my from my parents and and their experience was. The perseverance, like they worked incredibly hard to to make that business work. You know, it it took them a solid decade before they got it working really well and and really struggled. So I'm grateful for their kind of what they were willing to do and what uh, and the sort of lessons that I got out of that. I, I would also say one of the important lessons was. They also couldn't leave. You know, it, it was uh, like a lot of entrepreneurs, you have to not only pay attention to the, the exit opportunity for your investors, but you need to have a personal path that if for whatever reason uh, you can't or don't want to continue to operate your, your company, you have an option. And they didn't really have an option. Like it was this company or having no money. And so I, I never wanted to be in that spot. I never wanted to be in a spot where I had no choices. And so that, that also has affected me in the way that I think about things. Like, I want to have choices. And thinking about choices and, and also the way that you think about things, why do you think it took you so long to, uh, to start your own business? Because, I mean, you did, obviously, you graduated, you did engineering. Uh, then uh, you really got into space, you know, with NASA policy making uh, in in DC. But why why that sequence of events? Why did it take you a little bit of time of going at it, you know, versus just going at it right away after after school? Yeah, you know, I asked myself that question too. I think fundamentally it was concern about debt and concern about like what happens if it doesn't work, and a big enabler for being able to be able to start my first company was paying off my student loans and making a little bit of money at America Online. And that combination gave me a bit of a safety net that I was willing to take the bigger risk of, okay, I mean, I actually, I left a ton of, I left a million dollars of invested stock on the table at AOL in order to go do my first company. So it was it was very risky in that way, but I had I had vested into enough shares that I could pay off my loans, have a little bit of money in the bank, 
I, it, it provided a little bit of comfort level. And I think that's fundamentally the reason. I, I think that's kind of like the pure rational reason. I think the more emotional uh, answer is that entrepreneurship takes some guts. And it's, you know, the guts are enabled by having a soft landing pad. In other words, you're not going to be destitute if you, if it fails. Even now it takes guts, right? I mean, uh, being an entrepreneur in your 50s in Silicon Valley is not a, uh, a straightforward or obvious thing to do. And it takes an emotional willingness to not only put in the time and the money and the effort, but also take the emotional and social risk. There is no good idea out there that starts out with, there's no awesome company that starts out with all of your friends saying, oh, Sunil, you're so smart for doing that company. Oh, you're so, I'm, I'm talking about the beginning, right? If all, my advice to entrepreneurs is if all your friends and your family tell you that this idea is great and that they like, and that it's, you know, just such a smart idea, it's probably not a good one to go pursue because it's too obvious. Like yeah. you want the idea that a big portion of your friends, not all of them, <laughs> but a big portion of your friends are like, yeah, maybe some other people might use that, but I wouldn't use that. Or, you know, are you sure you want to go do this company? Aren't there are other things. Can't you go get a job at a, somewhere else or, yeah. you know, isn't it's there? Like people, if people get it, that means that probably you're too late. Huh? You're too late. and. If other people get it, it also means that as soon as you put it out into the field and make it publicly known what you're doing, someone else is going to go do it because everyone else thinks it's a smart idea too, right? It's not just your friends that think it's a smart idea. So yeah. I, I think there's, it's important. And part of the reason why Silicon Valley works is that, and I mean Silicon Valley culture works, is this tolerance for, okay, like you went and tried something that everyone that people around you thought was stupid and didn't work. It's okay. Like you gave it a shot. And I think that that is, uh, that tolerance for failure that people talk about a lot as, you know, as, as one of the uh, ingredients for successful Silicon Valley culture. It's not that we celebrate failure it's that we, we, we respect the willingness to try. And that's a, that's a big difference. Now, the first company, Freeloader, I mean, that was a, that was a quick one eh, from start to finish because uh, literally, I mean, that, that's kind of like unheard of nowadays, six months, you know, from beginning all the way to exit. I mean, uh, tell, us, tell us what were you exactly doing at Freeloader? Because, I mean, we're talking about the mid-90s here, the early internet. Uh, what yeah. were you guys doing there and, and why did the transaction happen so fast? Yeah, well, first, I think you got to put listeners back in the mode of, uh, of that era. We're talking about the, the mid-1990s, 1995, 1996, when uh, the internet was you know, dominated by companies like America Online, where, where I was internet product manager. And, and getting online involved a modem, you know, that... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like that experience and a fast modem was 56 kilobits per second that world was the one that that we were 
in at Freeloader. And the idea behind Freeloader was you could load for free <laughs> the content on the internet uh, in the background while you're doing other things or uh, overnight if you were preparing for the next day, you're going to be on a trip or whatever. Because there was no Wi-Fi. <laughs> there was no cable speed, high-speed network. It was the idea that you could load a bunch of content onto your hard disk from the internet. You could play back the videos. You could play back the web pages. And you wouldn't have to wait for them to, to download. We also had a screensaver where that content would show up on the screensaver and um, kind of make it an easy way to interact so that you could show up at your computer and instantly have the experience of the internet. And that was the, that was the idea. We had a, we had a competitor that uh, some listeners will remember called Pointcast. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you, an important lesson out of that is we, um, well, I'll tell you one very important lesson is have great co-founders. My, my co-founder at that company was Mark Pincus, who is one of the best like deal-making, pace-setting entrepreneurs alive. So that's one of the reasons why we were able to get that, that, that uh, transaction done so quickly is, is Mark's just insatiable uh, drive and ability to get, um, you know, we had multiple bidders for, um, for what ended up being a sale of the company. You know, we, we thought maybe we'd made it raise money instead. But I think another important lesson is that was one of many bubbles that I've been through. That one isn't as well known as the is kind of the push bubble. There's this whole wave of the internet called push, uh, and Pointcast was the, at the forefront of it, and it all got shut down by basically sysadmins who got tired of the content coming onto the networks. Our decision to sell ended up being, in hindsight, brilliant. At the time, it was a tough call. We weren't sure should we sell, should we keep going. And I mean, I learned you don't always know that you're in a bubble when you're in one. Uh, in fact, you hardly ever know. It also taught me that when you see someone offering something way out of bounds from what is, uh, you know, you, you know, you know, everything has to go perfectly for a very, very long time uh, in order to, to kind of match up, then you're better off taking that, that offer. Yeah, because Pointcast, oh. you know, the way I put it is, you know, we sold at 38 million. Pointcast got an offer for, I forget how much. It felt like it was around 10x that, maybe it was only four or five X that from News Corp, I think it was. And they turned it down. And maybe another six months after that, the whole thing fell apart. So we went from, you know, morons for starting the company because I left all that stock on, on the table. To geniuses for selling, to morons for, you know, not you know not holding out for even higher value. To geniuses again because we sold it at uh, <laughs> at, at a price that uh, you know, whereas Pointcast ended up selling for for you know some de minimis amount. Yeah. So also you know that that cycle of you're a moron, you're a genius, goes back and forth, and so you just you can't get too hung up on everyone thinks you're a moron or Everyone thinks you're a genius. But that, that, this obviously gave you full 
visibility into the into the full cycle of a company, no, and into how you start, how you build, how you finance, because obviously there you had people investing like the young Fred Wilson or SoftBank, where yes. they were not like as big as they are today. But uh, then you go to the exit, uh, and now you have you know kind of like a full lay of the land on on how you really you know do the the full cycle. No? Now, in this case, you know as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. So then, you know, you went at it, you know, again. So tell us, you know, what was that process? Because, you know, after the, the company shut down, I mean, you, you, you had moved to the Bay Area and you decided to stay there. But then you went at it again, you know, with Brightmail. So how did the idea of Brightmail come about? Yeah. You know, the uh, Brightmail was a lot about seeing a problem and, uh, and noodling on ways to try to try to fix it. I started getting spam in my AOL account. My wife started getting spam. And I started thinking about different ways to, to try to solve it. One of the more kind of interesting moments there was I had a particular way of, of solving it in my head that I started working on, actually with a bunch of former uh, freeloader engineers. And I took the idea back to AOL, as well as to a bunch of other uh, ISPs. It involved client software. and. Uh, every one of them said, we don't want to do that. We don't want more client software. And so I, I assembled the team uh, in, a, in a conference room at Dulles, I remember, and uh, to tell them, okay, look, I've taken this out to the marketplace. Marketplace says, this is a dud of idea. Let's, we're going to kill it. And then I literally went to the whiteboard and thought, hmm, well, is there a way you could do this on the server? And sketched out what ended up being the architecture and the system for Brightmail. And I was like, huh, yeah, that could work. And unfortunately, all the engineers were all client-side engineers, so I didn't end up using any of their uh, skills or, or do any of that. But yeah, I mean, it took many months to, to actually get it. But I think it's a good example of you really want to get, I mean, look, this is like standard practice now with startups that, you know, uh, the whole lean startup uh, uh, methodology of get your idea, get your product out in front of customers as soon as possible and get feedback from the marketplace. It was already in uh, kind of our, in the way that I thought about things. So, uh, but this is a good example where I took the idea to potential customers and they all thought it was terrible. And that might've been the end of it, but then you know, applying some more creativity and idea, ideation on it, came up with a variation that ended up being a highly valuable company. Um, you know, Brightmail was, instead of six months, it was six years, built to profitability instead of, you know, a zero revenue uh, company, um, which is, you know, freeloader versus Brightmail is very different. Multiple rounds of, of capital. I also learned the value of, of, uh, of strong execution CEOs, uh, learned that I didn't know how to do that. And uh, Enrique Salem, who uh, was a CEO when we, when we sold the company, you know, very strong execution. And he went on to be CEO of, of Symantec um, many years after, after the sale. And I think that was one of the, you know, Freeloader was so fast and so, uh, you know, I don't know, kind of like the bluebird kind of experience. Uh, 
Bright Mail was much more formative because it it really uh, kind of brought home how do you actually build a real company with profits and revenue and growth and uh, an executive team and a full and a full operating team and a full board like all the things that 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 um, come with that and it was a great exit i mean we were ready to go public we filed this one and decided to sell to Symantec in part because <laughs> after the dot com bubble crashed i went back and i went to went to school literally took classes on value company valuations and uh, went to back to basics and realized that again the 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 value of selling at that moment was was better than than given the price than what the potential was for for the company and what an exit too i mean 370 million so um yeah. so good outcome hey guys so pardon the interruption here i gotta tell you that you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, after this happened, you really got into investing. And uh, one of the investments that you made as an angel investor is LinkedIn. So uh, yeah. what, a, what, a, what a good outcome. I mean, obviously during this time too, you got into cleantech and, and all this stuff. But one of the questions that I wanted to ask you, and I'm sure that there's going to be Many investors that are going to be, you know, really listening to this answer that you're going to give is, what do companies like LinkedIn, you know, that end up becoming a LinkedIn and an exit, you know, like the one that they did to Microsoft for billions, what do those companies look like when you are, you know, becoming an angel investor or thinking about making an angel investment in a company like that at that stage? Consistent with what I said earlier, there are always many people who think it's not a good idea. Now, that's not a good screen <laughs> for an investment because <laughs> almost every idea that you see as an investor, other people think is, is not a good idea. Like I can't claim any kind of crystal ball on these types of things. I knew Reed and 
uh, was in, interested in this broader category of social uh, social networks and and social media, and the idea of of a business oriented Facebook made sense to me. And I had no idea that it would end up being worth so much, but it was clear that there was a there was a need in the marketplace. I think honestly, it, since then, I and the broader investment community have gotten much uh much more clear about the characteristics like it's kind of interesting because of the internet because of all the sharing the there's there's a more of a discipline around what makes for an interesting and uh you know an interesting venture-backed company or maybe 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 the true practitioners of it have always known but it's more widespread knowledge so i mean fundamentally in order to have a successful venture outcome, you have to have a big market, you have big margins, and you have big growth. And for someone, for, for a company like LinkedIn, big market, big growth potential is already growing pretty fast. But you know, you could see that, especially Reed and the rest of the team, very focused on viral loops and things that were still a new thing back then. The big question at the time was monetization. And especially in the dot-com bust era, uh, the idea of uh, you know, companies that, that just grew like mad and had no real revenue plan attached to them uh, were extra scary. And so one of the appeals of LinkedIn is that read from the beginning had a vision of lots of different potential ways of extracting revenue from once the network was mature. Um, so that's part of what's attractive. It's actually LinkedIn is a little bit unusual in that they have multiple streams of revenue. Most most of these big media companies, you know, it's almost always advertising, but they have a a kind of single or a very small number of of revenue streams. And kind of the same with SaaS companies. You know, they kind of sell their product, they sell variations of their product, but they fundamentally have a a business model. Now, in your case, you didn't want it to get stuck really on the investment side because, you know, obviously you 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 keep doing that and 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 you were doing that very well. But but as an operator and entrepreneur, I mean, you you kind of like fell the uh, the bug again, and that happened with Sidecar, and Sidecar ended up evolving to what you're doing right now with Spring Free EV. So. I think it would be great, you know, if you tell us what was the sequence of events that needed to happen to you really, you know, uh, bringing your latest baby to life. So tell us a little bit about that process, that journey. Yeah. Well, as I mentioned before, or sorry, that was in our pre-conversation. <laughs> so <laughs> I've been thinking about this idea of how do we make electric vehicles more affordable for a long time. I actually. I was digging through some other uh, patents and I, I discovered that I'd filed a provisional patent that I didn't pursue uh, back in 2009 on a, on a related idea. So it's, it's something that's been kicking around in my head for a long time. What got it going uh, into like, let's try to make something happen, honestly, were the fires here in the Bay Area. Um, you know, the, all of the, the fires that, the forest fires that, I think at this point we can safely say, have at least been made worse, much worse by climate change. 
And, you know, as everyone kind of understands, it's hard to have a causal, direct causal link, but we know that it's getting worse and worse because of climate change. And I started asking myself, what more can I do? My first answer was, I started a contest around, you know, could we get to product market fit around this idea of, of the mileage purchase agreement? Mileage purchase agreement is a pretty simple idea. It's that an electric vehicle costs less over its lifetime, way less than a gas-powered car, but it costs more upfront. And that upfront cost is a big barrier to, to people buying it. What if you could charge a small fee per mile, a use fee, and use that to bring down the upfront cost? So simple idea. Um, honestly, I like simple ideas because they allow you to come back to the same theme over and over again. You know, I mean, the simple idea, ride sharing, car sharing, uh, bright mail and anti-spam, like they're all very simple ideas at their essence. Turning them into reality is never simple, but it's nice to have a simple theme. So the simple theme is how do you make electric vehicles affordable? And this innovation of the mileage purchase agreement, I started in on a contest. I remember because it was my birthday and I, I was just frustrated that I hadn't done anything about it. So I was like, what if I could just get some people to help me on LinkedIn? So I just, I posted on LinkedIn, hey, are there some entrepreneurs out there that are willing to help me with a new idea? And a few responded. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll turn this into a contest. And so I, I created a contest around my, just how do we get to product market fit? Um, got you know over 20 teams to participate over the next uh, roughly four to six months. Um, had modest prize money. One of the important lessons out of it was that while the prize money was a motivator, the big motivator was simply to engage with me and with some of the other judges. Other judges included Andrew Beebe at, at Obvious, uh, Jigger Shaw, who was at Generate, now running the loan program at, at uh, DOE. So that was interesting. And, you know, because basically, just because there's an interesting idea, as again, we all understand in the sort of Silicon Valley culture, you, you got to get to product market fit. You need to have an actionable thing, a, a, a specific product formulation, a specific market niche to go after. And so, you know, was it, was it ride sharing or car sharing? Was it, uh, was it the US or another country? Was it, was it trucks? Was it buses? Was it, like what was the category that would that could that could get this idea to to really take off? So that was kind of the very beginning, but and there was a first place winner out of that that's gone on to raise angel uh, money and is is fielding a consumer oriented mileage purchase agreement company called Flux. Um, but the other big thing that happened was again the wildfires, but this time the Day of Orange, which for everyone in the Bay Area remembers in 2020, the fires caused so much smoke in the, uh, over the entire Bay Area that the entire day was orange. We never saw the sun. It was a kind of apocalyptic day. And we all just wondered what the heck has gone on, what's happened to our world. And it was, it was those kinds of experiences that really made me realize, okay, I can't just continue to be on boards and invest. I have to apply my now decades of experience in mobility, my experience and discipline as an operator and, and, and my innovation. Um, and fundamentally, I'm an optimist. I, I feel like there's much more that can be done. So that's what, that's what kind of pushed me over to, okay, let's go do some 
an operating thing. I'll be honest, the original version of this idea was a fund and through a number of pivots, but the most important pivot being the realization that we could have climate level impact. So I believe based on, you know, now increasing amounts of evidence that this innovation and kind of closely related innovations can literally have an impact on the climate by causing electric vehicles to uh, to be adopted at a rate way faster than um, than is currently project projected. Lots of folks, I think, think that electric vehicles are already they are already growing very rapidly. There's uh, that's obvious. What most people don't understand is that it's still not enough. Uh, if you look at the amount of electric vehicles we need on the road in order to get to net zero in ground transportation by 2050, there's, you know, the current projections are about 124 million. We need uh, almost 200 million electric vehicles on the road. So roughly 75 million uh, vehicle gap. In other words, there needs to be a way to dramatically increase the pace of adoption adoption and we believe that this can do it and now we've gotten you know we've gotten a product market fit we've gotten a go to market fit we've gotten we've got a scalable team we've got we've got all the ingredients and uh yeah it's exciting because now it's it takes time to get all this stuff figured out and 100 percent, yeah, we got it it's fine now, now now talking about all the ingredients here i mean the investment side is an important one, but on a company like this, the way that you go about structuring that uh, fundraising is a little bit different and unique. So, so can you walk us through it a little bit? Yeah, well, I think it's uh, it's definitely different than the traditional venture capital world because uh, because we are actually acquiring vehicles. We're we're buying the electric vehicle and or and or financing it. And honestly, what's really helped is that there's a fintech playbook out there and um, also the precedent established by um, finance companies like in solar, companies like Sunrun, that have demonstrated that you can build big venture backable, big growth companies that uh, also are asset heavy. In other words, they are able to tap the markets for asset finance in order to dramatically scale up um, that portion of their business. And so whether you're talking about mortgages, you know, traditional house mortgages or solar um, or point of sale loans or peer-to-peer -peer loans, like it goes on and on. There are lots of examples of fintechs that are able to, to enable the connection between capital and whatever the the asset is and and set up a platform that connects those two and grow their business based on the success of that platform so that's that's the approach we've taken um to date what we've done is used uh asset capital in other words purchasing vehicles by accredited individual investors and um, you know we're we're we've raised basically pre-Series A um, corporate equity, 
And that's the model that will continue to, to scale up. So continue to raise more uh, corporate equity, in other words, uh, VC capital, and also raise additional asset um, asset investment and start moving to institutional sources of capital simply because they're more scalable, right? We can go raise hundreds of millions of dollars in, in asset finance, um, especially with a, you know, because we're talking about a, an asset that everyone understands. It's a car. Yeah. That is, that's the, basically the model. And it's different than, I don't know, certainly different than all the previous companies where there was no question about how do you, how do you finance the asset? It was always about, you know, either creating a marketplace or creating a big piece of, you know, bright mail was this incredibly complex uh, uh, enterprise software. Yeah, each one has been a little bit different. <laughs> now, 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 talking about that, because you, you actually did uh, touch on, on, on many of the lessons that, that you did learn, you know, throughout the way on, on these different chapters that you've gone through as an entrepreneur. But one of the things that I wanted to ask you is, if I was able to put you into a time machine and bring you back in time, maybe to that moment where you were still working in corporate America and thinking about going at it with your first business with Freeloader, if you had the opportunity to have a chat with that younger Sunil, maybe that younger Sunil that was still at the AOL, and uh, give that younger Sunil one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? I think I'd probably say something along the lines of, it's going to be okay. <laughs> just just uh, by that time, I had, like, like many entrepreneurs, thought about lots of different variations and had been involved in any number of little businesses. You know, my, my first little tiny mini business was selling stickers in, I think it was third grade or fourth grade, <laughs> for which I got in trouble. Because you know you're not supposed to be selling stuff at school or something like that. Anyway, <laughs> I think the the advice to to me as a, as a first time entrepreneur or to other first time entrepreneurs is uh, don't believe the hype around everyone goes into debt on whatever mortgages their house and all that. I don't think that is a good way for uh, entrepreneurship to to operate in the United States or, or, or anywhere in the world. Like entrepreneurship is a risky thing and uh, we need better tools to enable people to, to launch and grow their businesses. And honestly, there are a number of things that, uh, that U.S. society helps enable in that way. Uh, there are also a lot of things that hold us back, but one of, them, one of the enablements lately has been things like the Affordable Care Act, like having a safety net of insurance, like it's scary to to even as a young person to go out there without health insurance, right? I mean, who knows whether or not you're going to do it? But uh, I think I think the other big dynamic that we've already talked about is the the sort of lower sto social stigma uh, and of of a failing, but more importantly, the the social endorsement of trying. Yeah, I think the part of what I'm what I'm reflecting on is that there were all kinds of obstacles for me to to launch my first business. Um, 
I didn't want to, I didn't, I didn't want to end up in even deeper debt. That was yeah. one of my big concerns because uh, I was already in debt and had been in debt for, for quite some time. And once I was out of debt, it kind of created the freedom to, to go do this thing. I'd also seen my parents struggle because they had had so much debt in their business. It was one of the reasons why there was no exit for them. Like they had to just keep at it and you know, kind of make those payments because otherwise their house was on the line. Like, I just think that's a, it's a crappy way to, to live, <laughs> to, to feel like you have no choice. Um, so it's actually one of the inspirations behind this company is like, we, we make it possible. We make it possible for these small entrepreneurs to add cars to their fleets and grow without having to mortgage their house or, or, or whatever, you know, like that's, um, it's kind of an important principle. And I, I constantly advise entrepreneurs to not buy into the hype because the media really likes to be able to talk about, oh, they, whatever they, they took this big risk and people do take huge risks in order to go become entrepreneurs. I just think you shouldn't end up in deeper debt as a result of it. That's my very, very. That's profound. my kind of advice, and and maybe I didn't need that advice back then because I already was already on it. So I'm kind of cheating your question. Sorry about that. <laughs> so, so, so Neil, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Honestly, I, I could say oh, follow me on Twitter, but which you can do that. Uh, you know, I'm at Sunil Paul uh, or LinkedIn, uh, same thing, I'm Sunil Paul. Uh, but honestly, because just for your listeners, I'll give out my email address. It's sp at springfreeev.com. Amazing. Well, Sunil, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. What, a, what an honor to have you with us. Well, thank you very much for having me. It was a lot of fun. You ask really deep questions. I was not prepared for it all. That's good though for you. <laughs> if you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.